0: Early Alzheimer's and denial. What is it like when everyone can see what's happening to your mom, but your mom can't or won't admit it? How do you get her help when she knows enough to know she doesn't want it? I'm your host, Valerie Borgman, and today we're welcoming back Jody from The Caregiver Club, who you might remember from a couple of episodes ago when we talked about having smoother outings for those with Alzheimer's. Today, she's telling her story
1: dad was like, something's wrong, Jody. We kind of worked together, my dad and I, in terms of how do we get mom to go to see a neurologist. I mean, she was like, everybody doesn't remember names. Nobody in my family can do XYZ. You know, she would push it off and she was very social and very good at hiding any kind of shortcomings.
0: Welcome to Desperately Seeking Senior Living, a podcast for sons, daughters, grandkids, and spouses who suddenly find themselves tangled in the search for senior living and care. If you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and check out our doable download in today's show notes for a printable summary of the show and a bonus tip from our guest.
1: I think that the best way to start is with myself and my background. I'm a, I am ai have a doctorate in physical therapy and I've been working in the geriatric and rehab setting for probably about 15 years. So I am very used to working with people with dementia or brain injuries or, you know, massive change in personalities professionally. So I think when my mom was diagnosed in 2017, I was able to kind of navigate the situation with with my family and for my family and potentially a little bit different situation than most people are faced with because of my educational background. I had much more knowledge. I also had the ability and still do have the ability to interact and communicate with this population in a way that comes very easy and natural to me. So I think that kind of set my family up on a slightly different path potentially than most families. So mom was diagnosed in 2017, but getting her diagnosed was about a two to almost three-year process. My dad came to me about three years before she was officially diagnosed, said, you know, something's wrong with your mom. You know, something is different. He didn't really understand what was happening. Again, as a professional in that world, I kind of knew something was happening. So
0: as a professional, were you the family member that sort of saw things changing first?
1: Yeah, so I definitely knew things were going on. There were certain behaviors that mom was doing that were definitely just off. But you know, I was I'm a mom of four kids, so I had a lot going on in my own personal life plus working. And my dad is with her every day. And you know, I think your spouse can kind of identify things way earlier on than most. So I had seen some things, and then when dad was like, "Something's wrong, Jody," we kind of worked together, my dad and I, in terms of how do we get mom to go to see a neurologist. I mean, she was like, everybody doesn't remember names. Nobody in my family can do X, Y, Z. You know, she would, you know, push it off. And she was very social and very good at hiding any kind of shortcomings, mental shortcomings. She was a master at disguise. So did she know? I think she did. I mean, now I can't ask her because we're past that point, but I do think she knew something was happening and she was very defensive to it because I think it's also generational situation where, you know, in their generation, it wasn't talked about. You would, didn't go to a therapist. You didn't go, you didn't have brain issues. You know, I mean, it was definitely a generational, I think, situation where she was totally fine and she was going to hide it until she couldn't hide it anymore. And so when dad kind of brought it to my attention, we, the two of us really worked together to try to, along with my brothers and sisters, to try to get her to the doctor. It started with the primary care physician doing small small memory tests. Then it went from the primary care doctor suggesting, why don't we go to see a neurologist? I don't need a neurologist. She would say, I don't, you know, I'm totally fine. And so it was a battle. I mean, it was a, it was a long process to get her there. But we ended up being able to get into a fantastic. St. Louis was where I'm, where we are from, and Washington University has an amazing Alzheimer's Institute, and so we were able to get her in um, and see a fantastic doctor. And they started running tests. They didn't diagnose her right away. It was kind of a lot of back and forth. She did get an MRI eventually and agreed to that. So they were able to see on the MRI the increase in proteins, and along with dad and my testimony of mom's behavioral changes and different changes that were happening socially, she was finally given a diagnosis. And I remember sitting, I remember distinctly sitting and she was pretty, she was still in the mild, obviously mild stages by the time we got our diagnosis or her diagnosis. But I remember being in the doctor's office with dad and the doctor explained to dad and I first that mom had to had Alzheimer's. Mom was not in the room at the time. And I remember my dad having this combination of relief because he finally had answers to what was going on. And then just like the sadness of what had just happened. Um, and so dad was like, we went out to lunch afterwards and dad was yeah. super sad. And, and I had a feeling that this was happening. I mean, No, professionally, I knew what was coming, you know, and I was trying to prepare dad for it and. And so I remember being at lunch and mom, when you go when you talk about how they feel, you know, they might not be able to communicate what's happening, but they definitely can feel mom's like, why is dad so sad? And we hadn't told her yet. The doctor had recommended that we don't tell her yet. And so I was like, oh, you know, it's okay. He just, is having a bad day. And, and then we, we ended up telling mom, we had another doctor's appointment scheduled right after and told mom right after. And I remember talking in that doctor's office and we would go to mom and be like, do you understand what this means? And she's like, absolutely. I totally understand. I am losing it. <laughs> she was, and so she was, um, she was a little, you know, joking about it. And then she would get defensive. And, and I was like, do you know what all the time you know, we're going through what explaining it is. And, you know, but she would, kind of forget. And so you'd be in the car two weeks later. And my mom, well, you do have Alzheimer's. Well, that doesn't mean I can't do, you know, and so it's just this kind of back and forth between her memory going and things she would do and, and then supporting my dad and supporting, you know, the rest of us.
0: What were some of the behaviors early on that she was exhibiting?
1: So, so she was a big cook. Growing up, I mean, she was a stay at home mom. She cooked. We have, I'm one of five kids. So she cooked. She was a caregiver. She was a homemaker. And she would do things cooking wise that she would have never done. Like she put broccoli, she, she, she would put broccoli in the microwave with ice cubes on it. And say this is how she had done it for years and years and years, and I was all of us would be like, she's never she would never cooked broccoli like that, <laughs> and so she's like, I know exactly what I'm doing. I have cooked broccoli this way my whole life, and we, my brothers and sisters and I would be like, No, you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so things like that, we would start to find things in different spots, like in the laundry room, you'd find something that should be in the fridge, and she would put barbecue sauce we found in the freezer. A lot of the difference between frontal lobe and, and Alzheimer's or just dementia and Alzheimer's is that kind of inability to know what an object does mm-hmm. and or what it's used for. And mom would always put, we had to finally get rid of it. She would put ranch dressing. She was always a cream and coffee person. She would put ranch dressing in her coffee and she would get her coffee and she would get, no, she didn't want it black. So she would go to the fridge and she would pick up the ranch dressing bottle, which looked exactly like her creamer bottle. And we're like, Mom, that's not creamer. She's like, I know what it is. I've been doing this my whole life. <laughs> then she would pour the ranch dressing into her coffee, stir it up, and it would still be too hot. So she would kind of not take a full sip of it. She'd set it down, walk around, forget where her coffee was. Where's my coffee, girls? Mom, your coffee's right there. She'd pick it up, she'd take a sip. She's like, Oh, this is terrible. Dump it out. <laughs> who did, who made this coffee? And then she'd get more coffee. She'd head to the fridge. She'd reach for the ranch. And we're like, no, 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 no more ranch. No more ranch in your coffee, mom. And so those type of things were happening. And then she just would get really defensive on anything that was challenging her independence. You know, mom, I don't want you to pick up the girls anymore. From you know, my mom would used to pick up my kids and on like Fridays and take them to the ice cream. Well, we were getting to the point where we couldn't take the car away from her just yet because that was too big of a struggle. But I wasn't comfortable with her driving my children, so I had to navigate. No, mom, you can't pick them up. I'm gonna pick them up with you on Fridays and we'll all go out to ice cream. Well, why can't I drive? You know, and huge. Uproaring battles.
0: I think that was an excellent strategy.
1: <laughs> like, yeah, oh, I'm gonna join. <laughs> yeah. But that didn't work. It didn't work very well. <laughs> and even like I said, I think that I had the ability to communicate with mom in a way that didn't escalate things where I don't, and that I think is because of my profession. But you know, dad, would, they would fight and fight and fight. He didn't understand what was happening and he didn't understand how to communicate with her. And so there would be massive blowouts. And then she wouldn't remember what they were fighting about, but she would know physically that it wasn't. It. So she would have, she would mope around and it was like, what's wrong. And she wouldn't be able to explain why she was moping, but she knew that they'd been fighting, uh, you know, and I'm trying to coach dad and my dad's a wonderful man, but his personality and my personality sometimes don't jive. So I'm trying to professionally tell him different strategies that I know would work, but his reception to that mm-hmm. was not necessarily well received, I guess.
0: That's so interesting because I think that is really tough. On one hand, having that background is so helpful, but you're still the daughter. (laughs) So, you know, I can see where that would be really, really hard. You know, you know what to do, but yeah. I mean, it's hard anyway to change your communication style. Well, right. then
1: my brothers and sisters would always like, I was the one thrown into the ring, you know? So yes <laughs> I was, mom needs a shower, you know, when mom was still, she's not, she's currently in a memory care facility. She's been for the last two years, but, but it, while she was still at home and we were still, we had caregivers coming into the house and dad was the primary caregiver, but I was there twice a day, three times a day. But if there was an issue, it was me. I was the one. I you know, I was the one giving her a shower and she was the one hitting me because she told me she took a shower this morning and she hadn't showered in 3 days and
0: Oh, wow. How did you handle that?
1: You know, it's a lot of agreeing and kind of a, like you said, kind of playing on the emotions. So if I was calm and agreeable and I didn't force too much, I would have to prioritize. What is the very very top thing I need to get done? Okay. She hasn't She hasn't washed her hair in four days. So we have to wash her hair. She doesn't wash her body fine, but I have to get her hair done. It's a very common symptom in Alzheimer's and dementia or specifically Alzheimer's that they don't want to get their hair wet. They don't want to lean their head back. So she would not wash her hair and no dad, no caregivers. She wanted nothing to do with them. So, you know, my brothers and sisters were like, you're up girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Darn it. (laughs) So it's a lot of, you know, I would do a lot of distraction. I would do a lot of tricking her. I mean, we kind of you kind of call it therapeutic lying. I would lie my face off and therapeutically lie to her in every way under the sun. If I had to tell her the president of the United States was coming in a minute and she had to get in the shower because the president of the United States needed your hair washed, then he was coming and she was getting her hair washed. You know, I mean, I would do anything that I knew. Necessary, and and dad, my dad always was like, you lie to her. I was like, she's a not going to remember it in ten minutes, and b, I got her hair washed. I didn't. If I had, I mean, it's 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 therapeutic. Line you have to get what you need to get done to get done.
0: Creativity,
1: yeah, creativity. (laughs) And I was like, it was so much easier for me to do that than my brothers and sisters and my dad because I had been doing it professionally. I mean, I, you know, I need to get this old man up to walk in the hospital if I need to tell him his wife's out the, out the door, then, you know, so I think that I think it was much easier for me to do that. Cause I knew my goal, my end goal was getting accomplished. And that was better for the patient in the end than the white lie or whatever I was telling them.
0: Yeah. What, what was that like? That must've been a lot of pressure.
1: Yes. And no, because my family is very supportive. I mean, I think that they understood each one of my brothers and sisters honestly have either, whether it's their spouse's parents or they have had dementia, Alzheimer's in their family other than their mother, you know, so it's like my brother's wife's dad had Alzheimer's. So they they've had kind of experiences a little bit. So they knew what things that were necessary to get done. And so they had a, they had a level of understanding that allowed for, you know, no necessarily pressure on my end.
0: That's really good because I know that denial is something a lot of families deal with and you have siblings that can't accept it. And so that's really good that you had that experience.
1: I do think, I mean, our family as a whole came a lot, has come a long way in this whole process. I mean, I don't, it was not, it's not to say that we haven't had our struggles getting to where we, we are. I, we're a very open family. I think that probably one of the best things that my family has done and dad, I mean, I remember mentioning it to dad and I think It was up to it was his decision because it's his wife and I was like we cannot keep this a secret like this we need the village and we have really not had it been a secret since day one since mom was diagnosed you know once we actually got the diagnosis I think we were trying to strut you know in the beginning we didn't we no one knew what was going on but once we actually mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's we have never kept it a secret to anybody and I think that has helped enormously. It has helped my my dad to have his support system with his friends. It's helped my mom's friends support her because they knew something was, you know, my mom plays bridge and Mahjong and they knew something was going on. And so now that they had that knowledge, they were able to support her and support us. And so I think that that kind of openness has not all families do that and want that. And the patients don't want it. We talked to mom about it, about telling people, and she was fine with it when she understood when she was capable of understanding. I think that was a big help. And, but to also say, go back kind of to my family, it, it definitely took each of us, all five of my brothers and sisters and my, and my husband and my, and our, my in-laws, like uh, their own path to come to understand what was happening. Some people got it much quicker. Some people you know, took a lot longer years to, to kind of wrap their head around what was happening with mom. And so I think that, you know, everybody kind of gets to the end or gets the, gets to the realization of what's going on at a different time. And I had to be sympathized with that. And we've had many discussions, many cries, many fights, many, you know, it's not perfect, but we've kind of all kind of gotten to the same place and it does help. Like I said, I think my family situation is unique because of my professional background. So I was kind of instantly the quarterback which has been very helpful because everybody kind of can defer to me in some regards but it's still a joint effort to help mom so yeah
0: i i really love you know what you were saying about everyone kind of came to it in their own time because this is one of the i think brutal things about this disease is coming to that realization that you are essentially losing this person oh yeah and so I think that is really important that, that it, it just, it is very individual, mm-hmm. the person that has the disease and the people around them and, and how they're yeah. coming to understand it. So I think that's really important.
1: Yeah. No, the grieving process is you lose them twice. She's at a stage right now where she kind of has lost her ability to fluently speak. So she can speak words, but they don't make any sense. And they are all jumbled. So they're actual words like dog and cat and sunshine, but they make no sense. But she's having a full on conversation with you and her emotions are there and she knows who I am. She hasn't said my name in a long time, but, you know, I can make, once I make eye contact and she focuses on me, you can see the visual, you can see it visually come over her face that she's like, oh, and she'll say, I love you. Oh, and you can just see her light, her light up. I love you. So, you know, that she still knows you, you know, and she knows my dad and my siblings. But in terms of having a conversation, she can't carry on a conversation, which for me, I'm fine with that. I go. And we sit and I tell her, she's kind of like a really good therapist. Cause she doesn't talk back to me. So I just, I just go and I just let it all out. And we just sit in a room and I just had chat and chat and chat, chat and tell her all about all the kids and all the things. And she just like holds my hand. It's great. And I keep telling my dad, I was like, dad, you should just go and just talk to her. And he's like, well, what do I say? I was like, just tell her everything. She doesn't, she doesn't, she doesn't say anything back. Great. I was like,
0: she has no opinion. I love that. I absolutely love
1: that. (laughs) And it's therapy for you. (laughs) Oh, it's such therapy. It's so great. Like I'm talking to her, I'm talking to my mom, I'm letting it all out. Oh my
0: gosh. That's great. So great. What was that point? Because you talked about in-home care. What was that point where the decision moved to a memory care facility, which actually is where she's at is more like an adult family home.
1: Correct. Correct. And this is actually our second home. So we started, which is a whole nother process. Yeah. What was that decision like? It was, that was a whole, we could talk for a really long time, by the way. I was like, how long does this, how long does this podcast go? Cause this could go on forever.
0: I think this is so important because a lot of times, especially the decision, a lot of families really struggle with that decision to move from home to a community or an adult family home setting. And then the other part of your story, when something doesn't work, I think is also really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. So what was that decision like to move from home?
1: You know, it was a group decision with my dad's kind of final say. So we were to the point where mom needed seven to seven care and my dad could do the nights, but it was, she was, in a a situation where she was a, she was a danger to herself and to other, not to others violently, but like leaving stoves on. I mean, so she literally had to be pretty much in your eyesight 24 seven in order to be safe. And I think that was the turning point. It was exhausting my father and we still had help. At the time we had a service here in St. Louis coming into the home to help my dad. They had occupational therapists coming in to give him tips because even though I was a professional, it was having that third party listening. He was listening better to them than he was to me. So it was a combination of mom's safety, dad's exhaustion. And, you know, knowing that it just kind of organically came, like it was time. We knew that dad couldn't keep going like this. And mom was just too unsafe. I mean, it was just, it was just too unsafe to have her continue to be at home. And it wasn't necessarily balance and physical issues that were making her unsafe. It was more everything that she was doing from, you know, walking out the door and walking down the street, you know, to leaving the burner on, to keeping the refrigerator door open, to all of a sudden picking at a piece of glass and then she's cut her, you know, it's, it was a whole host of different things that were happening in the home. And so she was, she could not be out of your sight. We started to look around to different facilities. We chose three different facilities. We all kind of put in our input as a group of five. We did leave it up to dad. He was paying the bill and it was his wife. And we had to be okay with his choice, which we were at the time.
0: Was the first move a community, a memory care community?
1: It was a memory care facility, yes. But it was the 25-bed, you know, locked memory care facility. And at the time, this was right. We actually put her... (laughs) I'll never, this is like, mm-hmm. again, a whole nother. So we put my mom into the home March 9th,
0: 2020.
1: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a big day. A lot of other things going on in St. Louis at the same time. It was like the first COVID case. So we had made a plan in February with the facility we had chosen. We had met with their social workers. We had, we had met with a family of five. We all kind of had a very big plan in place in early, mid-February. And so we were going to do our plan, which was my parents were in Florida at the time. They were going to not go back to their house. They were going to come straight from Florida and we were going to go straight to this new facility. She was never going to go home. It was all going to kind of work out in place. We had caregivers. We basically had a break. It sounds horrible, but we had a break mom from dad because they had slept together for 62 years. So dad was kind of removed, almost like ripping off a bandaid.
0: How did that, how did that look?
1: Horrible. Yeah. Well, like not ripped as in like by, but like we had, we came home from the airport. We drove to the facility. I was with them. It was dad, me and my mom. We had lunch at the facility. Her room was already set up. I had done all that prior to them getting coming home. So we had moved her furniture over. I had set up the room. I had put the pictures up. I had made it look like her home, her bedroom at home, the bedroom, the bedding, everything looked like home. So I had done that pre-work before. And then we got to the facility. She was happy to go in. We had lunch. We walked, walked around. We met some people. And then dad, we kind of you know made up a therapeutic lie that dad was going to go to a business meeting because that she would get that and she would understand that. So dad was going to a bank meeting. My sister was in the parking lot for my dad. And then so she took my dad and then I stayed with mom for a while longer. you know, And then we kind of left from there. We had a caregiver that was at the house come to relieve me. So people that were already with her prior to that were coming in. So she recognized them. So we kind of had this kind of rotating. It was kind of like a blending of the home care that we had had with the new facility. So myself and the the caregivers that were at the home kind of were on a rotating shift, but it was a horrible. Like it, it was horrible. It was like the worst three months of my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, no, our listeners can't. See this, but you're tearing up. I mean, it was it was really heartbreaking, sounds
1: like yeah yeah, sorry yeah <laughs> yeah it is, yeah, it is. It was it was super hard it was, and so I think I think one of the things so we kind of moved my dad didn't we really wanted dad, and it was kind of decided upon upon myself, my brothers and sisters, my dad, the social worker that was helping us, and the caregivers, that I would be the point person, so dad kind of left, he did, we have a family farm. It's kind of complicated, but he left St. Louis. He was close. I mean, an hour away, but he left and really wasn't the point person for all the needs that went on in the beginning. So I was called in the middle of the night if they needed me. If mom was really agitated, I was the one that they got. If I had to change the meds, if I, if they needed, mom wasn't sleeping, I would check in with the nurses like six times a day. I would check in with the morning nurse, you know, so I was doing all of that. Dad was not. So I think, and it, and that was on purpose. I mean, we, we had decided that I was the go to. He would talk to her every once in a while, but we were really breaking her of him. And it was, she took a massive mental decline between March 9th and July of, you know, August of 2020. She went downhill pretty big. And we, we're told that. I mean, it's different when you are told it and when you experience it. She definitely took a, and they call it transitional decline, you know, so that transitional decline definitely happened for sure when she went from home to, and I don't think, I can't imagine that anybody, any person affected with this disease would not have transitional decline leaving their home and going to a memory care. Like, I just don't see how, I mean, we knew it was going to happen, it happened, but then on top of it, COVID happened, so we couldn't go in. So that, I think, also exacerbated the whole situation, you know, because the things were shutting down every ten minutes. We had had this whole plan in place in February, and then that fell apart like a tumbling bricks. The caregivers could go in for a while longer than the family could. then the caregivers couldn't go in anymore. And so we were just kind of at the mercy of the memory care facilities. I think also that didn't help, you know, the situation and mom's situation by any means. I mean, she we knew she was going to decline regardless, but she, she had a really big decline and it was definitely challenging. I mean, it was having an infant baby was like a walk in the park compared to this, but now, I mean, you know, we're past that, but there was a lot of learning, a lot of crying, a lot of talking.
0: Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I mean, and you know, you were talking about transition trauma, you called it transitional decline. We actually just did an episode about transition trauma. Yes, absolutely. Any change, even just a trip to the emergency room, (laughs) right? Yeah. Any change can cause that. It's so devastating. And then to add COVID on top of it, and now you can't visit.
1: Yeah. I mean, and also, you know, like I said, back in February, we had this plan. Okay. Dad's going to take like three weeks off and then we'll start introducing dad back in and me back, you know, all of these things that we had thought were going to happen. And like, we're told by the experts, this will be good for her. None of that happened. But then in the same sense, we were relieved that we got in when we did, because it was, you know, had they had to go into full COVID lockdown with just the two of them. I mean, I, there's no way I could have not been there. I mean, we would have been, had to live as a family of seven together. There's no way my dad could have done it. So it's like a catch 22.
0: (laughs) Wow. Was COVID and that decline the reason that that first facility didn't work out?
1: Yes. And no, I think the way in which the first facility handled COVID After things were becoming more readily available, things were not necessarily opening up, but there was definitely different procedures in place at others' facilities, like rapid testing was around now. And their rules and regulations were, I thought it was just not okay. (laughs) And I was like, this can't be right. And so I was like, I wonder what the other facilities are doing. The other two facilities we looked at in the very beginning, I was like, I started to call around, I was like, what is your COVID policy? they told me theirs. And I was like, Whoa. And then I went back to the facility and I was like, look, we, we made a commitment to you. These are what other places are doing. Let's have a conversation about it. Can you make these changes? And they weren't willing to move and change. I remember sitting in an outdoor visit. Mom was across like 30 yards away behind a gate, sitting next to this darling activity therapist, holding his hand. And I'm on a couch in the corner bawling my eyes out and being like, how is this okay? Like how I will take like seven tests and quarantine for weeks to go sit next to my mom. And I've got a 22 year old that goes out to the bars and can come in as an employee and sit next to my mom. And I was like, that's not okay. So that was a big turning point point. <laughs> and rapid tests were available. I mean, there was like seven other ways to test, you know, to be okay with the situation. So then we actively started, we, like I said, we talked with the facility she was at, they weren't willing to change. And so we actively made choices to move her.
0: And the place that you moved her to, I'm, I'm familiar with, you moved her to Dolan house, yeah, which has the ability to have sort of smaller areas. And so I imagine that they were able to be a little bit more open because it was just easier to control. Correct. That's awesome. It's a great place
1: yeah i mean they did a fantastic job mom is so well cared for i cannot speak any more highly about them
0: and it's a home and
1: it's a home it's it's a 12 bed you know home i mean they have a kitchen and a dining room and a living room
0: yes and so that feels familiar yeah i actually love this option for memory care because as you're declining in your memory you're going back to those older memories which are usually in a house for this generation. And so I'm sure you're glad. It sounds like that you made that decision.
1: Yeah, Yeah, we made a very good decision. And I think that that you know, I've had a lot of people coming to me. I write actually a blog and I've been blogging about it on another website, but I've blogged about this whole journey. If anybody wants to come read it. Yeah. We'll put that in show notes. And Mm -hmm. it's now going to be on our new caregiver club too. So we're just going (laughs) to, they're they're together, they're all together, but they will be all in one
0: spot. For our listeners that didn't listen to the caregiver club episode yet, definitely check that out. Go back and listen to that. Yeah. We'll put that in show notes too
1: you know, therapy for me is writing. I've been, I've written in a journal since I was 16. So I think that writing that this journey has also been super therapeutic for me, but the move to our new facility, it was not something that we thought would happen. You know, we chose the place but I, I did, I do remember having those early conversations, like, you know, especially to my brothers and sisters and my dad. I was like, if this is not a fit for mom, in the first place, we can move her. She's not in jail you know we can do this i mean is it going to be easy no but she's this is not the end of the road where it's once and done and i never expected that to come true but i also didn't expect covid to happen you know what i mean <laughs> so i think that having that openness like yes we're going to give it a good shot and yes we're going to work with the facility to make it the space that mom deserves and we did and we needed to make a change for her and so i think being open to that and knowing that it's you know, you might feel like you're putting her in jail, but they're not, you're not in jail. You have, you're writing the check, you're paying it. You're, you know, this is your choice as a, as a caregiver, as a family, like you have a lot of say in the situations. Exactly. And
0: I think it's also important. And also this is something that we've talked about before is that sometimes with memory care, it does take more than one move because the environment really affects them. And so I imagine that this was amazing for your dad too. Mm -hmm. It was because he got to reconnect
1: for sure. And I think, and that also goes with caregivers themselves. I mean, we went through several caregivers that just didn't work. And I think, you know, you really do have to find the fit for your family and for the personalities of your family and how everything kind of goes. And the Dolan house has been amazing. They just, they do. I cannot speak highly, any more highly of them.
0: We're going to put a link to them in show notes, too, for all of our St. Louis listeners. So what would you say would be your number one doable tip for families?
1: I think meeting them where they are. I think that going through this process with my brothers and sisters and, and my dad, I think that personally coming to an understanding of just meeting the person where they are Whether it's a bad day, mom had a really bad day yesterday and I went and she was exhausted. And I think I said five words to her and I left after five minutes, because. but that was her day. And the next day I go and she's like, Chad or Kathy about God knows what, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So, I mean, I, you really have to meet them where, and that's really, I think one of the hardest things to learn if you're not used to that, every day is different and you have to just come to them as opposed to forcing them to come to you.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by The Caregiver Club, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the lives of those living with dementia and those who care for them. Their caregiver cards help raise awareness about dementia and Alzheimer's and soften the hearts of those you interact with. With The Caregiver Club, knowledge is power. Find more information in today's show notes. Check out this episode's doable download in show notes for details, including industry terms and definitions we discussed, as well as a bonus tip from our guest. Have questions or your own tips to share? Leave us a message. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, make it doable.